Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, where a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Uh, this is our final show of the year, and Sally just had her final show of the year. Um, so it's a great time to catch up on all the great out-of-the-pan episodes from throughout the year. You can check them out and all the other um, podcasts or shows on 3CR, the podcast versions of the shows via 3cr.org.au. And yeah, Sally will be back for a Queer Street Party special event on the 12th of Feb uh, and we'll be back um, to Out of the Pan programming soon after that. So stay tuned for that, but again, a good chance to catch up on all the Out of the Pan episodes that you missed throughout the year. So today um, I am joined by Harley. You're all, all set there, yeah? <laughs> I have some technical issues. I Actually, sorry, it has been a while. Uh, turning your microphone on would actually help. So I've done that now. So now we can hear Harley as well as Hello. me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm Nick today. And well, I'm Nick every day, but I'm Nick hosting today. And today we're going to be discussing, um, yeah, something me and Harley have been discussing for a while. Um, I guess myself, I've sort of come across this in my academic work and, and Harley has um, definitely been engaging uh, with these issues as an activist, but also reading the academic literature and that kind of thing as well. So sort of the crossover between activism and and, um, and academia. Um, but we're looking into um, specifically Extinction Rebellion, the climate group. Um, their, their argument um, that I've often heard repeated in speeches and interviews and that kind of thing, that uh, once we have 3.5% of a population... Uh, of a country actively engage in sustained protest. So I guess that doesn't mean just signing a petition or just uh, it, you know, going to a rally, going home. It's like ongoing, like sustained protest uh, that that guarantees success. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll hand over to Harley to start things off, like where where Extinction Rebellion got, got that claim from and, and that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, of course. So I first came across this particular research um would have been back in 2019, I think, um, and I came across it in a book called This is an Uprising um, by two brothers, Mark and Paul Engler. Um, so the book has the subtitle How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. And essentially it presents this model of social change, um, which is all about kind of, uh, it's called momentum-driven organising, um, which seeks to merge like structure-based organising, so traditional community organising, and these kind of moments of like mass uprising that we see around like um, particular moments of like social cohesion where people all unite behind the same issue and um, with a shared concern. So it seeks to kind of combine those and uh, develop these like moments of the whirlwind, it calls them, these big mass uprisings, um, but then capture that energy and kind of build towards lasting change. Um, so that book draws a lot from research by political scientist Erica Chenoweth. Um, and Erica Chenoweth um, is a social a social movement researcher um, and her main kind of focus is on investigating why social movements succeed, so the cases in which they've been effective um, in achieving social change. Um, and she has kind of two main findings, I guess, um, or two key findings that have been influenced groups like XR um, and the founders of those groups. And that is one, that nonviolent movements are um, like 50%, I think it is, more effective um, so that they're 
in achieving their goals. Um, and I'm going to, I guess I'll talk probably later about like my uncertainty and I guess developing critiques of this, not this research in general, but of its application. Um, but just this is kind of what it's drawing on. So yeah, the nonviolent movements are more successful and that also that, yeah, the golden rule, the 3.5% rule, um, which found that in all the cases that she studied, um, which were kind of cases from all around the world, which saw like significant political change, usually in the form of like, um, I think exclusively in the form of like overthrowing a dictator, um, regime change, that kind of thing. Um, if a movement managed to mobilize 3.5% of the act um, of the population in active popular support, um, then they would be successful in their goals. Um, so that kind of was taken by a lot of different groups. It was taken by Mark and Paul Engler and um, built into their momentum model, um, which was then used to kind of start a whole bunch of groups. Um, and I guess a very early precursor of that was XR. Um, and XR's founders were heavily influenced by this research um, as well as other research into social change. And I think used this 3.5% rule in two ways. One was as a legitimate core belief that they built their movement on, that if we just get mass numbers, we can't fail. Um, and this was, I guess, supported early on with... XR in the UK very quickly achieving what seemed like a, their goal very quickly when they got the UK government to become the first to um, declare a climate emergency. So it felt like it was very backed up. Um, but I think they also used it in another way, which was um, a bit of um, positive propaganda um, <laughs> in that a movement has to have a story that people can believe in because if something feels impossible, people aren't going to jump on board. So to mobilise as many people as XR mobilised, they needed to have something that would... They needed to show the scale of the crisis, which they did, but they also needed to show and make people believe that they could be part of the solution. So by presenting this, it sounds like a very small number, 3.5%. Mm. It's like, all we have to do is get this. Um then it gave something people something to mobilize around because they believed okay that's that seems easier than we need to overthrow the whole government and change all these systems which just seems impossible so i guess that's the origins mm -hmm. of it yeah yeah and i think that um yeah i guess i'd, I'd say a few things about it that um yeah, I, I, first of all, I think it, it is good that um, activists are drawing on research from academia. Often those two yeah. worlds are so separate. So, again, I think that it is a positive thing. Uh, we are going to bring up some critiques of, I guess, the way that it's used, as you said, not so much the research itself, but how it's been applied. Um, but I do definitely have some sympathy um, for Extinction Rebellion activists or, or any activists. Like, if you just hear, oh, 3.5, and it's based on academic research, I don't necessarily blame activists for not like looking through the finer details of the literature because you know activists have other jobs in many cases other responsibilities and families and, and everything else and so it's, it's you know, finding time for act activism is one thing and then trying to be on top of all this social movement uh literature is, is kind of another thing so i definitely don't at all uh fault extinction rebellion for that or, or the activists who have taken it on but we are going to get into some critiques of again sort of the some of the finer details or some of the problems with that, um, with again the way that figure has been used. Um, so yeah, I guess again that that sounds good. It sounds like it's backed by research, and you can't fail. But why uh, might that not be as clear cut as it might sound? I guess. Yeah. So I guess back to my journey with this. So yeah, when I just when I came across like this research, um, which was yeah in this is an uprising the book. Um, again, yeah, back 2019. Um, for me, it was just, yeah, this big, like, lightning bolt moment of, like, finally some kind of hope. Like, yeah, exactly like you said, it felt like this is research-backed. This is something that can actually learn from. This is the blueprint. And that's how a lot of people describe it, like, especially in the momentum organizing communities. There will be talk about golden rule or the blueprint for social change. Um and a lot of the a lot of the kind of uh, this is an uprising draws from the op poor 
um, revolution. Um, so in well the late 90s, early 2000, um, uh, there was a, like a Serbian dictator, Milosevic, um, and he was overthrown um, in this massive popular movement. And Oppor is considered um, the... I guess the blueprint for momentum organizing um, and its leaders, the leaders of Oppor, um, which they would say there aren't, there were no leaders of Oppor, but um, the people who have kind of spoken on its behalf consistently um, have gone on to do a lot of trainings on social change and then to run like, uh, like skill sessions, write books. And one of them is, which is literally called blueprint for a revolution um, and things like that. Um, so it was, I guess, a big relief for me to kind of fall down this rabbit hole of social movement theory um, to go from kind of feeling like I was that random activist just holding a sign on the street and not feeling like I was having any impact to being like there is a way, there's a pathway laid out in front of me. If I just follow these steps, it's going to happen. Um, so that was a big motivator for me personally. And like I moved to the UK um, uh, with this belief um, and got involved with Animal Rebellion, um, who like Extinction Rebellion, are very influenced by this research um, and have the same kind of, I guess, golden rule. Um, and I think there was, it was pretty soon for me, like a, a year in or something like that where I started to have my own doubts. And it wasn't because we were failing to mobilize the numbers that I expected. Like, I always knew it was going to be hard. I didn't think it would be like, well, we have this golden rule. It's going to happen like this. But it was more so just recognizing that the context we were in was so radically different. And that's, for me, that like there's a couple of different points on that. So for one, the research that Erica Chenoweth did um, – focused exclusively on like yeah repressive regimes um and you know there'll be arguments to and from that the uk and australia are repressive regimes i would probably be for that <laughs> argument but not in the same there way. are degrees i guess there's yeah, a degrees yeah, yeah. and there's also levels of uh i guess transparency with oppressiveness so i would say that australia and the uk are oppressive in a lot more hidden um under the and yeah, like secret ways, whereas other regimes are a lot more outwardly oppressive. Um, you'll get shot or executed for protesting like we're seeing in Iran at the moment. Um, whereas here it's more just it's all under the carpet. Um, so Erica Chenoweth says herself that her research focus on movements seeking to overthrow oppressive regimes, resist foreign occupations and to secede from a state. So that's very different than from a movement that is seeking to achieve social change. And I think there's some really key things there. For one, in that context, most people will be affected by the issue. They'll And they'll also probably be, most people will probably be negatively affected by the issue. There'll be, you know, a small minority who are benefiting from a dictatorship. Um, but most people, there's a giant pool of people who are oppressed and who probably don't want to be. And if you can just give them the safety and the belief that if they actually stand up, fight back, they will, they could win, then there's a whole pool of people to mobilize. It's very different from an issue um, such as animal rights, particularly. I think climate change does affect everyone. You just have to convince them that it does affect everyone. Um, but it also feels a lot more immediate. It feels a lot less immediate. Mm. Um, so you might see a massive uprising when there's something like the bushfires where it's like, I might die now. Mm. But it, for the most part, it's like in the distant future or in the future, something bad might happen a lot harder than you may be shot tomorrow. Mm. Um, so that's, I think one key thing, one key difference. Um, and then I think another kind of key difference is that just what I was saying before about the difference between like very outward oppression and then secrecy and um, keeping things below the surface. So what a lot of momentum organizing is based on or like kind of it talks about this thing called repression backfire um, so that activists will be doing something like they'll be taking action, they'll be doing it over and over and over again and then suddenly not suddenly but then the authorities will respond in such a way as to be deemed 
like an overreaction or an overreach. So this might be for a really great example is um, the civil rights movement. Um, I think it was with the, the freedom riders. So the, um, they kind of mobilized a lot of, no, sorry, it was in Selma um, where they were protesting. I'm pretty sure like segregation and things like that. And there was a lot of very peaceful protests. And there was this famous footage of um, activists, like young student black activists just peacefully sitting in the road and being like water cannoned. Mm. Um, and that footage went everywhere. And that really was what mobilized the the other side of America. So it was kind of up until then, it had kind of been like the South was just like, oh yeah, we're embarrassed that they still do that, but we're not going to meddle. But then that footage was a big thing that forced like the president um, and key leaders to stand up and go, actually, we have to do something about this because people are outraged. Mm. So that's when oppression is very visible. But when it's invisible... Um, So, for instance, if we look at animal rights, a lot of the ways we are oppressed as activists um, or repressed, I should say, um, is through like changing laws. So, for example, ag-gag is a big way of repressing animal activists while making us look like the bad guys. Because if you make a law that says, you know, add something already to trespass, so like you're affecting the biosecurity, you're putting farmers at risk. Um, it's hard to make a repression backfire thing for that because it's really hard to make the case for why you're the victim. Um, so I think that's another key thing of like this like silent, invisible repression is a lot harder to fight and a lot harder to mobilize around. And like Erica Chenoweth herself says that if a nonviolent campaign is aiming for economic and social justice reforms, do we see the same types of success rates of violent and nonviolent actions? The answer is we don't know yet because those types of data collection procedures are not yet fully developed. Mm. So I think for me it was kind of going down this thing of realizing this really nice blueprint mm. that I'd believed in briefly just maybe wasn't going to work. And it was, it was very specific to a context we weren't in. And it was very specific to a certain kind of change, which was a massive change in government, which can be very helpful. But these deep-rooted social justice issues, such as like such as speciesism, such as racism, such as um, yeah, homophobia, heterosexism, all of those things are so rooted into our society that we can't just achieve them by throwing out government and putting a new one in Mm. and they're not enough they don't affect enough people to by themselves to mobilize the numbers needed to actually even get the government out let alone transform society in the way it needs to be transformed Mm. yeah absolutely we we better go to a song in a moment i'll just say a couple of things before we go to the song though um yeah i think that's a really good point about the ag gag where we see we've already got laws for trespass for example but then additional laws are are put in place to um lead to particularly harsh penalties around people doing things like open rescue going in and rescuing animals or doing protests at slaughterhouses uh those kind of issues and we see repression, as you mentioned, but it's more about activists getting tied up in long court processes and dealing with activist burnout and sort of acti- and sort of movements that are petering out that way, rather than big sort of you know media worthy stories of protesters being hosed or those kind of things that you mentioned with the civil rights movement in the United States. And I think another uh, good point you raised as well was about. Um, the bushfires and I've been to climate change rallies for, for many years um, but I and others were actually most active once I started breathing in the smoke in the air from fires that were you know partly uh, caused by climate change and so yeah I think there's a lot going on there in terms of like global inequalities like there are some low-lying countries who are experiencing this right now even Australia we're experiencing this right now too but not to the same extent as well and there's more resources to adapt to it and, and that kind of thing as well so um yeah, I think 
we definitely can advocate for other groups and issues we're not experiencing, but there is that problem of mobilising when people yeah. aren't directly affected. So, yeah, I should mention as well before we go to the break, we are primarily drawing today on Harley's article, um, Reflections on Rebellion, how, pe- how People Power Can Take the World by Storm, which is on animalrebellion.org. We'll put a link to that in the notes. Um, we're also drawing on an article by Kyle Matthews, um, Social Movements and Misuse of Research, Extinction Rebellion and the 3.5% Rule, which was published in 2020 in Interface, a journal about a journal for and about social movements. So we'll put links up to both of those if you want to look into any of the things we've discussed in more detail. Um, yeah, as you're listening or, or um, yeah, after the show. But we're going to go to a song now. This is an artist I've played before. He does uh, novelty music exclusively about the climate crisis. So um, this is called... What is it called? I've got to get that uh, in front of me. Um, the song is called uh, The Greenhouse Gas Emissions Breakdown. Uh, it's by Ollie Frost. Um, and it's yeah all about climate change. The planet's warming every year. The human cause is very clear. So in each sector, in each year, let's see how greenhouse gases get here. Rice cultivation's 1%. Wastewater isn't much different. 2% from deforestation. Same for shipping and aviation. Similar stats for landfills. Agriculture, fishing and chemicals. Burning crops is over 3%. Same goes for mixing cement. You don't have to like addition or be a mathematician. I'm not actually a scientist. I'm more of a musician. There's only one thing that you need to know. All these emissions have got to go. Science and learning can be so much fun. They tell you where greenhouse emissions come from. Stats and numbers turned into a song. It's useful to know things will die if we're wrong. 4% fertilizes crops, 6% just for livestock, cattle and sheep both ruminate. Methane warms at a quicker rate, 7% from iron and steel. Commercial buildings are a similar deal, 10.9 is residential. Road transport's even more essential. Fugitive emissions from energy production, unallocated fuel combustion. Together are about 13.6, sounds important, whatever it is. The rest comes from other industries, paper and pulp and machinery. Petrochemicals, non-ferrous metals, food, tobacco and the fulfilled metals. I'm not telling lies, but many of these facts have probably been revised, run it up and down, and simplified, you remember it all when it rhymes. Science and learning can be so much fun, they tell you where greenhouse emissions come from. Stats and numbers turn into a song, it's useful to know things will die if we're wrong. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling that beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au Trans Pride March Melbourne Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. Um, today on the show, we're talking about Extinction Rebellion's rule around 3.5% of the population um, guarantees success if they're engaged in sustained protest and some of the critiques of that and, and where do we go from here and that kind of thing. Um, and we actually just heard an announcement for the Trans Pride March. So you can listen back to that. Sally, who hosts Out of the Pan, was involved with that. Um, and also on Out of the Pan, I heard a, a um, announcement for Freedom of Species, but I didn't actually know we actually had. So that was nice, nice to hear. It must have been before I was involved in the show. Um, but before that announcement, we heard the song um, 
the greenhouse gas emissions breakdown by Ollie Frost. Um, and the reason I played that is just thinking about all the different things involved in, in climate change activism or just climate change. The issue, uh, one of the lyrics at, in the song was 6% just for livestock cattle and sheep both ruminate methane warms at a quicker quicker rate so talking about the yeah um the sort of the use of animals and the Im- impact that has uh, and methane's particularly potent greenhouse gas um which um yeah raising animals uh contributes to and I guess just when we're looking at figures, um, Adam is the sort of the resident scientist of, of our show. Six percent is very conservative. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I guess that doesn't include like chickens and, and other animals as well. But um, yeah, from from Adam, there, there's lots of different research on this topic. But uh, Adam has has told me and and shown me the study of the the most reliable um, figure in terms of the the golden rule, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture is. 16.5% of the total. So there's lots going on. We need all kinds of changes when it comes to climate change, but uh, animal agriculture is a significant part of it and probably one that is not addressed or definitely not addressed to the same extent as issues like fossil fuels, for example. Um but, yeah, I guess uh, we sort of turn to, we've, we've raised some critiques of that 3.5% rule. Again, not so much of the research, but more on the uh, the idea that it can be applied to any circumstance. And, yeah, I remember hearing someone from Extinction Rebellion give that figure, and actually while they were doing that, there was mass protests in Hong Kong going mm-hmm. on where they, I, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but they must have been getting close to 3.5%. It was definitely sustained ongoing. Sustained, yep. Um, sure. And, yeah, uh, but it didn't necessarily make a, a big difference as well. So that was also led to some people um, thinking critically about that as well. Um, but I guess, I, yeah, as we sort of turn to like, what do we do with this? I guess one thing perhaps we should address, it's like, you're an animal rights show. Why are you talking about climate <laughs> activism? Like, that would be, and so I guess that that is one aspect of animal agriculture in, in terms of like um, harming animals uh, directly, but also con- contributing to climate change. Yeah. But also, I think uh, climate change is also. I mean, I don't. I think it obviously is an impact that that leads yeah. to um, harm to animals as well. Not just species extinctions, but also harm to individual animals when it comes to bushfires and floods and those kind of things. And I think uh, climate change can often be often be viewed in such a human centric way. Like I'm here for my grand grandchildren and that kind of thing. And there's definitely obviously nothing wrong with that about having concern for your grandchildren. But if we only talk in those terms, it's sort of leaving out all the harm done to other animals as well. So again, I think climate change is is yeah is an animal rights issue. Yeah. I guess is there anything you'd like to say? I guess in terms of the connections. There? Yeah, I guess I totally agree with you. Um, I think also like just thinking about like social movement theory in general is a really important thing for animal rights. Um, I feel like for so long, even within the movement, Mm. animal rights has been seen as this very niche, very kind of, um, yeah, I guess like closed off topic of like there's a very small number of us and tactics have focused on that. So the fact that the history of the animal rights movement has largely focused around, you know, small numbers of people doing, I guess, a lot for a lot of the time highly disruptive things so animal liberation front um groups like that and then only really in the last well yeah i guess in the last few decades um there's been like a more i guess pressure campaigning and things where large numbers of people are getting involved um but that has been built on with this like um actions over time and people getting more mobilized and things like that um But in general, I think there can be a little bit of a tendency to feel very demotivated and alone and isolated in animal rights. And I remember um, there was a presentation a few years ago at a conference I went to on the lack of hope Mm. in the animal rights movement. Um, And there was a kind of sense that amongst a lot of activists and organisers, it was almost a sense of defeat before we even tried. It was like, well, we're not going to change this. It's too big. The scale is too big. So we're going to do whatever we can. Um, It's better than doing nothing. But, yeah, what are we really going to do? So the idea of building a mass movement for animals is, I think, something that 
at least for me, I've become more aware of over the last few years um, with this growing sense that it doesn't feel enough to kind of focus on individual campaigns, to focus on tactics that are reaching a small number of people and that this issue is deserves its own movement for change. It deserves like mass uprising with people. And this has happened over the years, I think. Um, but I think because of that, like we should be learning from other movements and we should be trying to think about how can we achieve the same thing for animals um, rather than kind of giving up before we even start because it's too hard. Um, so, yeah, but I agree completely about climate change as well. Um, but I also just think in general, like knowing our history of our movement and of other movements is only going to make us better activists because we can learn and we can think about, okay, what are, what are creative ways that we can try and move towards the goals that we want? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say for context for anyone who's kind of new to these ideas and Liberation Front is, uh, was and is, um, like, I guess more than, not so much an organisation, but more like a movement or a tactic where uh, people break laws on behalf of animals without ever harming, obviously, animals or, or humans as well. Um, but, yeah, it could be include things like rescuing animals, which which is illegal, or, um, yeah, in some cases, property damage and those kind of things. Um, but, yeah, I guess, yeah, I'd say I think that that's definitely an issue that you identify within the movement. I think another issue as well is that I think a lot of these discussions about the effectiveness of different tactics are dismissed as infighting as well. Mm. I think any discussion about what could be more effective, and I think we really need to, obviously we don't want to spend all our time criticising other animals advocates but even just for ourselves i think we need to reevaluate what we're doing could we be yeah. doing things more effectively and that kind of thing and yeah. i think that's where uh kyle matthews uh, article comes in yeah, in terms of that sure. article he is involved in his local extinction rebellion yeah. chapter um and it's like a critique which doesn't dismiss climate activism or say yeah. that's a bad thing but it's just about i think that's sort of really the important part of like scholar activism of again a lot of people who are doing other jobs and don't have the luxury to sit through academic yeah. journals as part of their job um, can actually just clear up some of this messaging yeah. and, and kind of get that out there to people. And I guess I wanted to link this to my own research because I've been writing a lot about um, individual veganism in the past, but more recently have spoken more about sort of structural change and systematic shifts and uh, moving away, not so much as individuals, but as a society from um, animal agriculture to plant-based agriculture, definitely, you know, in part inspired by like Harley's work with Animal Rebellion and other groups as well. Um, and I've got an upcoming chapter on that, but um, I guess one of the critiques I received with that chapter was was like you're saying that these these environmental activists are, are you know look look how effective they are because they're getting all these people who unite behind these structural demands about ending coal coal mm. um what am I um uh, what's the coal mine sorry Adani Adani yeah. coal mine yeah so we've got all these people mobilising we're all united we're all kind of shared um yeah shared opposition to these structural demands but yet that coal mine continued yeah um and I guess similar with this as well it's like oh okay rather than sort of focusing on individual veganism or individual change we need to sort of get mass numbers of people and out on the streets and and once we do this behind these like shared demands yeah. around you know maybe a, a shift towards a plant-based food system regardless of individual consumption or whatever then that's the best way to change and it's like well these the, these movements uh or this messaging um isn't isn't a silver bullet isn't uh yeah. isn't necessarily just gonna yeah. uh definitely work um so yeah i guess uh an important part of this conversation is what do we do with this do we go back to individual vegan like you know what i mean like where do we go with this yeah Yeah, i think like there's a few things that come up for me and yeah to kind of like um go back on a couple of things you said there um i think a big thing that um i think like is what i totally agree with is almost a sense that the means become the end um, so it's like a movement becomes so focused on the tactic that it needs or the the outcome that it will need to get to its goal. For example, yeah, mobilizing this number of people or getting this many people to watch a documentary or doing like handing out this number of flyers or 
having this number of combina- conversations with people at an outreach event or something like that, that they forget what the actual, I feel like there can be a tendency to forget what the actual goal is. Mm. And like, again, like, I think it's really important to comment that this is not just a kind of a criticism of other groups and their tactics and their strategies. Um, it's like, these are conversations I know that I have, and I know you, Nick, have as well, like with myself on a very regular basis of thinking about the work that I'm doing. And I've been just doing, I've been doing animal activism for six and a half years now. And I've done pretty much most of the tactics out there um, and found them to be useful and found them to be meaningful in a lot of different ways. So I kind of want to make it clear that I never feel like I'm kind of sitting back and being like, oh, well, what they're doing is wrong or what they're doing is wrong. I think what ultimately is that what we're trying to achieve in animal rights movement, but in any social justice movement in general, the the simple fact of the matter is, is it hasn't been achieved before. So we don't know what's going to work. So if groups are doing something, my kind of, I guess, response is, I guess, I'll weigh up whether it's something that I believe in enough to be involved in. Um, but in general, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know what's going to work. And ultimately, none of us know what's going to work. And I think that was a big shift in my thinking to go away from clinging to this golden rule and this blueprint and just wanting a path to being like, yeah, believe, like I used to believe that we could map out the whole path to animal liberation, could like put our goal up and then plan all the steps. And now I'm much more like it's kind of this twisty labyrinth of not really knowing what's going to go get there. Um, and I guess with what, what we do about that then, um, I think, yeah, Kyle Matthews um, in his article, he talks a lot about, yeah, this idea that, okay, so the 3.5% rule is important. Large numbers of, like mobilizing large numbers of people is not a bad thing, but that it's not the necessarily the only way of achieving change and that in fact that folk having that focus might draw energy away from taking a step back and critically evaluating is this the most the best way of achieving our goals um and i think like as organizations and as groups having really clear goals and really clear ideas of what our specific little piece of the puzzle is um because it feels so overwhelming to be like okay i've started an animal rights group my goal is animal liberation Mm. like that's just the most overwhelming thing i can possibly think of um whereas if you've started a group or if you're part of a group and you know this is what you do the best and this is what you're going to do and then you know exactly what your role is and you're going to focus on doing that really well. And this goal is the same, it's animal liberation, but you're moving towards it in your specific way. Um, And I think that is really important. So taking that step back to reflect on, we're not going to achieve this by ourselves, so what is our specific role? And if you look at movements across history, um, they've all had, it's described in the the literature is like a movement ecology. So different groups with different purposes, different tactics, not all working together in this harmony um, by any means, but all doing, all playing their part. And a lot of the times they disagreed with each other. A lot of the times they were like, well, we don't associate with them. We don't like what they're doing. Um, But it was only in all of them having their very specific like theories of change. Like this is how change is going to happen and working specifically on that focus that change was able to happen with everything coming together Mm. um so we don't have to agree but i think having focus is really important um i think also so yeah go back that taking away focus of maybe if we kind of like believe that we need to convince everyone that this is the golden rule then we might take away energy from other forms of activism which might prove to be that little that thing that can get us a little bit further which we don't know what that's going to be we don't know what's going to kind of break through um and we should all be ready i think um for if one group breaks through if they manage to spark this mass public outrage in this moment of opportunity where change is actually possible we should all be ready to rally behind that even if we didn't do it ourselves or even if it's not 
kind of exactly what we're working on at that time. I think those moments are rare and we don't know how we're going to get to them. Um, but we've seen them over time. We've even seen them in the animal rights movement where something gets out there and for some reason it over everything else gets people and people are suddenly showing up to rallies in hundreds. People are taking to the streets in thousands rather than struggling to get 20 people to a rally. Um, and we should be ready to seize on that and to jump on board and be like, okay, we're in this together now. Let's make this happen. Um, and to stand together, to organize together. But until that, I think, and Matthews talks about this idea of tactical diversity. Mm. Um, so different groups trying different things, not being afraid to experiment, to essentially just throw a lot of stuff at the wall mm. and see what sticks. So I think as activists, as organizers, this idea of um, uh, constant iteration, trying something, seeing how it goes, going back, reflecting, changing, trying again. Um, and if you look at XR, um, uh, while they have this 3.5% golden rule, Actually, if you look at how they organized in the early days, it was very much that. They had this organization called Radical Think Tank, which was the precursor to XR. And what they did was they just went out there and tried a whole bunch of different like actions. Um, that's how they came across this idea of like swarming, mm. um, where they take over intersections for like seven minutes, very short amount of time, the, the longest amount of time you can do it without it becoming like a restful offense, and then moving on and doing. And they found that they could disrupt these large parts of the cities and they would try out things, see what police response was going to be, see what um, effect it was going to have. Um, and then they'd go back to the drawing board um, rather than slogging away, doing the same tactic for months or years, having no feeling like you're not getting anywhere, um, which is, you know, just leads to, leads to burnout, it leads to exhaustion. Um, and it leads to just a lack of, enthusiasm and excitement with organizers as well which serious business of course and we're all in this because we care because we just you know our hearts are in it but if you're not finding a sense of excitement and energy like some what i'm doing is making change or could make change people are going to leave and that's what we see we see so many organizers leaving um so i think just in general not being afraid to try new things um, and not being afraid to step back and reflect as well and be like, is this working? Could we try something else? Yep, yep. And, yeah, I, I guess we yeah, we got to get another song very shortly. I just wanted to quickly ask, you're probably much more connected to Extinction Rebellion or just aware of their messaging than I am, but I was hearing this messaging a lot more, you know, when I was heavily involved with when the movement was probably mm. a lot more active, 2019, 2020, et cetera, of the 3.5. I haven't heard it, but also yeah, things have been quieter the last few years for obvious reasons. But um, I was wondering, have they incorporated, they, to your awareness, have they incorporated, like Matthew's article came out in 2020. I know not yeah. everyone's reading the academic literature, but have they at all sort of incorporated this at all? Do you know, or you're not sure? So I can only speak for you, um, the UK, Extinction mm -hmm. Rebellion. I'm not as familiar or not sure about what the mindset is with Australian um, XR. Um, but I know in the UK, if anything, they've just doubled down on it. Okay. Um, so, for instance, this year the rebellion was entirely focused. I think I forget what they called it, but essentially they had a specific talk. Um, oh, it was like Project 3.5 or something like that. Yeah. So doing mass outreach and all that about mobilising this number of people. I think what has changed is that XR have become less influential. Um, and that's, again, not a criticism of XR. Um, they've done an incredible amount in an incredibly short amount of time. They've cha entirely changed the narrative around the climate crisis. Um, but what happens very frequently is movements will grow, they'll get big, and then it's suddenly a lot harder to organise. And then other smaller groups, more radical groups often will come in and take that. So in the UK, this is like Just Stop Oil, for instance, has really been that force now where people are talking about them. They're the disruptive. Um, and I don't think a group like XR could have, sorry, a group like Just Stop Oil could exist without the work that XR did over the few years to then pave the way for a more radical group to come in and sh shift the conversation that step further. Um, so they're definitely still, XR I think is definitely still on 3.5%, mm -hmm. but groups who are gaining much more influence, like Just Stop Oil, um, I think that's the biggest one at the moment, I think they have a very different strategy and theory of change. They recognise that 
it can be more impactful to do actions which are small, very small numbers of people mm. doing highly disruptive, controversial things. Mm. So, for example, you know, throwing soup on paintings or storming mm. football fields or shutting down the highway. These are these are five activists or two activists or one person um, and focusing on getting media, getting shock um, and rather than the mass mobilization. So I definitely think the climate movement in general, which for a few years was basically XR, mm. is now, um, I guess, driven by a different theory of change. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm sure we do have listeners uh, who are you know directly involved with XR? So if we do, feel free to send us an email. We are at um, freedomofspecies at gmail dot com. So it's the name of the show, freedomofspecies at gmail dot com. Um, also, while you're listening to this song, you can actually text in um, if you want to. Yeah, if anyone's got any insights on this uh, extinction rebellion issue, zero four eight 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 zero nine eight five five. To give that one more time, um, so you can write it down, zero four eight eight. Eight zero nine eight five five, but we are going to go to a song now. Um, the song is "Capture the Flag" by War on Women, um, and it has the lyric. Um, no, you can't measure the larger impact of your activism under a capitalist definition, which I thought was quite relevant to what we're discussing today. shining or at least it's attempting to 
So get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshed Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamshed Wines is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR. This is Billy X. Jennings of the Black Panther Party. Power to the people. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Radical Radio. Uh, Today we're talking about Extinction Rebellion's uh, 3.5% rule in terms of getting success for social movements. Uh, We've raised some critiques of that and also implications for climate activists, animal activists, etc. And yeah, we're nearly out of time, so we're just going to finish up with some final thoughts on I guess if if we accept this critique, which I think, you know, from Harley and, and from Kyle Matthews, et cetera, if we accept it, like what do we actually do with that as activists? And, um, yeah, I think the critiques are very valid that we can't necessarily automatically apply research in one context to a completely different context and assume things are going to work the same way. Um, and so I, I definitely agreed with, with Matthews that there's no particular number that will absolutely guarantee success like getting more people can definitely be helpful to social movements but there's not necessarily one particular number that we can reach or at least not that we know yet um as harley mentioned there hasn't been sort of the same research in in more liberal uh democracy sort of context um but i guess in terms of justifying i guess my own focus on on thinking around this as as an activist but probably more so as an academic of thinking about more structural messaging um yeah, for animals, again, thinking systematically how we can shift away um, from animal agriculture to a plant-based food system in terms of um, government policy, in terms of institutions shifting away, that kind of thing. I think even with this critique, I think it is very relevant and I think it really fits with uh, Matthew's work. As, as Harley mentioned, Matthew's uh, argues for tactical diversity. Um, so he argued that XR have focused on mass civil dis- disobedience, um, which he said may actually be less effective than other tactics like lobbying elites and direct action against fossil fuels, which Harley touched on that direct action issue. Um, but I think in terms of the animal movement, we're so individual focused that actually bringing in this structure messaging actually does contribute to that tactical diversity again a lot of it is focusing on um, getting individuals to become vegan which uh, again i think we can absolutely continue doing while we think about the structural issues as well um and but also another issue we've spoken about on the show before is that i think different to when i was more heavily involved in in vegan outreach in previous years there's quite a broad philosophical support for veganism or at least eating plant-based diets or more plant-based diets for that kind of thing so yeah i think there's you know there's two different ways we can go that of trying to encourage individuals to kind of put that philosophy into practice in their individual lives and we and again we can continue to do that but we can also think about well these people are philosophically on board maybe they can come to a protest along those lines or maybe Maybe they can incorporate messaging around animal agriculture into structural demands um, when it comes to climate activism rather than purely a focus on fossil fuels and and those kind of issues as well. So, again, I think the critiques are very important, but um, I I think it's still it doesn't necessarily take away from bringing that to um, to the animal movement because the animal movement, unlike Extinction Rebellion, isn't focused on that mass movement at the expense of everything else. I think there's like a last lack of that mass movement in the in the animal movement. um, yeah, any any final thoughts, Harley? Yeah, I guess I'll just read a bit of final thing from the article that I wrote. Yeah. Um, it's just rereading it then. I was like, it's pretty much what I'd want to say. <laughs> so I wrote, like, by learning from a variety of sources and movements and by remaining flexible, adapting to current situations and not being afraid to innovate, we can learn from the past and build new methods of change that are the best fit for the society we're living in. Books like This is an Uprising give us important insight which we can use to inspire our campaigns and strategy. 
What can be even more important, though, is what we learn when we take these theories and see how they play out on the streets. So I guess for me, the thing that inspires me these days is just trying and seeing what works. And like like I said, I think the more that we try, um, the more that we kind of like – and for me, I'm always waiting. I'm always kind of like seeing how to poke the system and testing for weak points. And I, I see it like that. It's like this stretched kind of – I don't know, a bit of glad wrap or something. You're kind of poking it with a fork or a chopstick, seeing where those weak spots are. And sometimes you do get a weak spot and you can enlarge it and make the hole bigger and, you know, all the water or whatever has been holding back pours in. It's a bit of a mixed metaphor. Mm -hmm. But essentially, yes, testing for weak spots. And you don't test for weak spots by kind of just drilling in over and over and over and over again, even though you hit solid rock. Um, and you can't get through and you'd be like, well, if I keep drilling for another few years, maybe I'll finally break through. <laughs> it's like maybe just move a bit to the right and try drilling there and you might break through. Um, yeah, it was glad wrap. It was rock. It was everything. <laughs> um, but yes, trying things out. And I think for organizers, for activists, for anyone, if you have an idea, try it. Get a few people together. You don't need to wait for the movement. You can be the movement. Um, so keep organizing. Keep building the support that you want, keep making things happen, um, and we will break through. Yeah, and I think I, I going back to the Extinction Rebellion, I can see kind of see the appeal of that, of like if we get 3.5, we'll definitely get that. But again, I think it'd be more accurate to say, here's some research that says 3.5 works in these other contexts. Let's give it a go and see if it yep. can work. I understand that's not as maybe as as much of a good sell, but it, I think it give is. give it a shot. Yeah, exactly. Red hot go. <laughs> yeah, it, it is maybe more accurate, though, I guess. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that is, again, that tactical diversity and being open to new tactics rather than in purely fixated on one particular yep. tactic which can um, lead to excluding others I guess so yeah um, we're out of time for today and for the year so again our final show of the year we will be back next year on the 22nd of January um, for the next four Sundays from 1 till 2pm um, we'll be running summer specials um, I'll be doing a couple on the 8th and 15th of Jan and there'll be other summer specials for the next couple of weeks um, you can check listen back to all our episodes at 3cr.org.au forward slash freedom of species or any favorite podcast app. Um, stay tuned for rotations to hear some new music. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Harley. No, thank you, as always. And we're going to finish up today with the song Cold by Stella Donnelly. Um, yeah, wishing everyone a nice break. Hope you take some time out, and we'll be back with more Freedom of Species in 2023.
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.